This morning we kick off uh, another installment of this mini-series that we try to do twice a year in three-story segments. Uh, we call them Grace Stories. And we schedule these uh, in September on purpose because it's a new ministry season, the summer's over. Uh, a lot of folks are uh, trying to figure out, is, is this a place where I can call a spiritual home, a new church? And this mini-series... Grace Stories gives us as good of a sense as any other of who we are as a church. It reflects something of our core values, especially number three, which is authentic community. It says this, at least part of it, we long to be a real place for real people with real stresses and life challenges. And when we admit reality, which is always messy and frustrating, it begs the question, where do we look for the solution to our problems. And that leads us back to core value number one, which is gospel centrality. We say as a church, we believe that no true fulfillment or joy or peace can be attained apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The salvation that Jesus has accomplished for us is the solution to our greatest problem, which is sin. Grace stories impact us so powerfully because they're real-life, authentic stories from within our community that don't ignore or deny the brokenness and frustration that each of us face on a regular basis. This morning, Lisa Chung is here to share her grace story, which will give us a glimpse of God's healing power in her as she trusts in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't ask the people in your life to provide what only the Trinity can. Human relationships are most beautiful when purpose, identity, and joy have already been found vertically. That's a quote from Paul Tripp. I grew up in a Christian home and became a Christian at a young age, but my parents weren't around much when I was younger. They emigrated to the U.S. right after they got married and lived very difficult lives. They were always working, and when they weren't working, they were busy with church. My older brother had his own things going on, and as a result, I was often alone. Being alone for most of my youth developed in me a very low sense of worth. My heart grew to believe I wasn't wanted or good enough. Eventually, I just shut people out, including my family, as I always felt a need to show them that I was okay and that they didn't need to worry about me. It wasn't until 2005, when my mom first got sick and could no longer work, that I was finally able to spend time with her and get to know her. I finally got to know the wise, patient, compassionate woman that others seem to know so well. This was during a time that I call my prodigal years, and while the rest of my family lectured me, she just prayed for me and encouraged me. I knew how much it hurt her to see me in that state, but she patiently prayed and waited, and I grew to regard her as the clearest reflection of Jesus I have ever personally known. As I came around, she apologized for not being there for me, for not spending more time with me, for not doing the simple things like taking me shopping or sharing more meals with me. But in my eyes, she was perfect and easy to forgive. I truly believed, had it not been for circumstances, that she would have been the perfect mom. I didn't realize it then, but I wanted desperately to tell her how hurt I'd been by her absence, not to hurt her in return, but to finally give her a chance to comfort that little girl in me. Instead, I pushed all the pain down into my subconscious because I wanted to stay strong for her so that she could get better. 
and as was my habit, I had to show her that I was okay. Then on January 30th, 2009, the cancer that had taken over her body sent her home. We were all there in the hospital when it happened. The moment she breathed her last breath, the moment after her final heartbeat when the nurse said she's gone. Some of the nurses with tears in their eyes. commented how beautiful it was to see how much she was loved. I said, no, she was the one who loved us. It was the most traumatizing experience of my life, and I was completely wrecked. The years that followed weren't any easier. I got married in 2010, a year in which so many others around me were also getting married. I watched the other happy brides as they joyfully shared their wedding plans with one another, and I just felt so distant from it all. As much as I loved my husband and looked forward to starting a life with him, facing such a huge life event without my mom left me void of happiness or joy. I got depressed, anxious, and quite frankly, I went a little crazy. And then the doozy of a downer happened. I got pregnant. Still newly married and working out the kinks in our relationship with no plans for kids anytime soon, not to mention working through my own ongoing grief. The pregnancy sent me deeper into my hole of sadness and anxiety. I had no idea how to be a mother to this child. <clears throat> I remember sitting in our apartment alone, hugging my belly and just sobbing while thinking of and missing my mom, wishing she were there as I faced yet another life-changing event. And then he was born talk about life-changing event. I spent the first year of his life having an identity crisis, trying to redefine myself as a mother without even knowing what that meant. The weight of the responsibility of parenthood was heavy on us both. And so each of our own character flaws came to the surface in our relationship and we were forced to face them. I felt lonelier than ever and missed my mom more than ever. I kept thinking about how she were still around she would provide all the love and encouragement I would need to get through. I would get lost in daydreams about how different I'd be and how better equipped I'd be had she been around in, more in my youth and given me that emotionally stable upbringing I just knew she would have been capable of providing. I longed for her with the deepest, most painful longing I had ever felt. We eventually started to find some footing as parents, praying for wisdom, reading books, seeking advice from others, and accepting God's grace for mistakes made along the way. But I still looked for someone to take her place, a mother figure who could love me and care about me in the same way my mother would have, a wise woman who would pray for me and say all the right things to encourage me or convict me as I parent my own kids. While I'm still looking, Earlier this year, on the seventh anniversary of her death, I successfully managed to spend the day avoiding all thoughts of my mom. The day after was a Sunday, when Debbie Voigt shared a part of her story. Pastor Peter, in his devotional, spoke about worship disorders and about Sheldon Van Auken, a man who had lost his wife. 
Van Auken wrote a book called A Severe Mercy in which he talks about the timing of his wife's death. They had both come to know Christ as adults after they were married, and his wife's love for God was beginning to make him a bit jealous. But he realized that her death had come at a point in time to end his jealousy of God and to spare their marriage of strife. In that moment, I thought of my mom. And for the first time, I finally understood the timing of her death. What didn't surprise me that Sunday was realizing that I idolized the idea of being the perfect mom who provides her kids with a perfect, emotionally healthy upbringing. What did surprise me was realizing I idolized my own mother and what could have been if she had been there for me. In my eyes, she was that perfect mother, only hindered by circumstance, and would have given me the perfect childhood and an amazing sense of worth. But since she couldn't do that when I was a child, I needed her to be the perfect mother, giving me the perfect support and encouragement as I raised my own kids. And she's, since she's no longer here, I thought I needed someone else, a mother figure, to take her place. I realized that Sunday that this is a worship disorder, and the reason why I haven't found a mother figure despite praying for one for years. Had it not been for the timing of my mother's death, the idolizations of the perfect mom would continue to brew in my heart, taking the place of God's perfect love. My views of my mom as the would-be perfect mom would continue to fuel my reliance upon other sinful human beings to save me from my despair. They would have continued to cloud my view of Jesus as the only perfect savior. Oftentimes I wonder why I couldn't have learned this lesson in a much less painful way. But the pain resides in a very deep place in my heart, a deep place that was once isolated and guarded by sin and idolatry. Now that it has been exposed, Jesus and healing and shalom are there too in that deep place. And I have come to realize that the deepest misery expands the capacity to know the greatest joy. In the last few years, two of my favorite uncles have also passed on. Those experiences were also quite painful, especially as I thought of my cousins and aunts and the struggles that lay ahead for them. But as much as I hate death, and as much as I miss them all, I've learned to view those occurrences not as painful losses, but as moments to rejoice in. They all knew Jesus, without a doubt, as their savior, and they get to be home with him. I can't help but smile as I picture them having the time of their lives. I am rejoicing with a deeper joy than ever could exist if the pain of grief had not carved out a larger capacity for it. I am, of course, still a work in progress, and this story is far from over. I might still catch myself measuring my worth in direct proportion to the amount of influence my mom had in my life, or by how good of a mother I appear to be. But I am quicker to recognize God's reminders that my worth is in his love for me. I can't help but imagine my mom in heaven sighing in relief that I'm no longer staring at her and her pointing finger, but finally seeing the object to which she had been pointing all along, Jesus. She may very well have been an ex exceptionally loving mother, but only because she was herself a child of God and knew the great love of God. She loved with God's love. I will never cease to be amazed by God's ability to turn the ugly things of sin into beautiful things that give glory and praise to him. This may be my grace story, but not as much as it is another one of God's amazing miracle stories. He simply invited me to be a part of it.
you join me as I pray with Lisa? Lord, thank you for granting our sister this courage. Courage not just to share this morning, Lord, but also before this morning, courage to look honestly at her own heart and to identify what she didn't want to look at, her own sin. Courage to... um, pursue the path you have in store, even wishing that there was another way, Lord, a less painful way. But Lord, uh, we remember Jesus, your son, asking the same thing, if there was any other way in the Garden of Gethsemane. And your answer, perhaps even from silence, was, it must be this way. And Lord, Lisa has uh, resolutely, by your strength, continue to follow after her suffering Savior. And we pray that you would abundantly shower her with more grace, sufficient for the day, whatever you call her to. Sustain her, Lord, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every way this morning as she serves as a city on a hill that all who hear would praise our Father in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That was a powerful story. I don't need to say that. Uh, Powerful, especially because I think many of us can relate to major strands in Lisa's story. It's not just unique to a child of immigrants kind of family context. There are lots of core messages there, all kinds of family backgrounds and life experiences that lead to one strand that Lisa described as a very low sense of self-worth. I know many of you struggle with that. She said, my heart grew to believe I wasn't wanted or good enough. We live in a fallen world, and the messages we receive and the, uh, the circumstances we go through, especially in our early years, leave us with a void, however good our parents may have been. And that opens the heart to all kinds of desperate grasping for significance and security and identity. Uh, Just as you may be thinking, I wish I could just sit down and let Lisa's story stand on its own, and it's a powerful one that points to Jesus. There's nothing lacking, but my job is to point us to Scripture and uh, draw out some of these themes that Lisa has courageously shared. So I want to turn to uh, the book of Exodus and walk us through a couple of sections. It's the second book of the Bible. Uh, I didn't know exactly where I was going when the bulletin was printed, but if you'd like to follow along in the blue Bibles under the chairs in front of you, turn to Genesis and then Exodus, and uh, we'll start in chapter 20. Moses is on Mount Sinai in the desert. The Israelites have just been redeemed from slavery in Egypt, and while on Mount Sinai, Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments from God, and these are the first words he hears. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Right away, the most important message the people receive from God is a message that worship is exclusive. I am the Lord your God. There 
are no other gods. You shall have no other gods, and you shall not make idols, representations of God, to bow down to. First two out of the Ten Commandments, 20%, right off the bat, emphasize a message that extends throughout Scripture into the end of the New Testament, the end of the Bible. And uh, towards the end of the Bible, we find uh, the Apostle John, in his first letter, these are the very last words that he writes. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And the Apostle Peter, after uh, he's arrested, he is standing before the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4, and he says to them very boldly, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we we must be saved. Worship is exclusive. It's the first thing God tells these ex-slaves who have no idea how to function as a society and no idea how to worship the living God. And it's just about the last thing uh, these apostles are saying towards the end of the New Testament. No other name, no other way. Sadly, later on in Exodus chapter 32, Moses is back on the mountain and uh, the people are getting impatient waiting for him. He's taking longer than they expected. And so instead of waiting, they decide to melt down all their gold jewelry and fashion golden calves. And they say, these are your gods, O people, who brought you out of Egypt. And we're thinking, really? And they bow down to them and worship them. Moses comes down. In anger, he smashes the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And Despite the people's in-your-face rejection of the God who went to such lengths to redeem them only weeks in their past, in chapter 34, God tells Moses to chisel out two new stone tablets to recreate because He'll make a covenant with His people. Amazing grace. And uh, as amazing, this is how God describes Himself, chapter 34 starting in verse 6. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. vast majority of His Uh, self-revelation, his description of his own being, his character, who he is, how he acts. He's a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Despite what the Israelites had just done, an in-your-face rejection, you've given us all things, life, freedom, and we're going to worship other gods. This is who God is. And and at the end of that um, description that God gives, uh, I want to link back and, and urge us to not miss something vital in what Lisa shared. Her idolizing of her mom, the enduring fantasy of all that her mom could have been, was sin. It was rebellion against God. It was an in-your-face denial of the goodness of her king while she went looking elsewhere. And it still is sin whenever she allows that fantasy to grab hold of her heart. 
you're hearing me describe this about uh, this powerful testimony and, and our, our, our sister. And at one level, I'd agree with you that that assessment sounds kind of harsh. It, it, perhaps it sounds unfair. Who could blame her? We might even think there's something sweet about the whole picture. We can feel maybe a a small dose of her pain that as a mother of little ones, she longs for her own mother and what she never had. Peter, what's wrong with that? What's your problem? Why, Why do you have to pick on these little details? But Lisa is confessing at the core of her grace story. She is confessing the reality of a heart her heart, that made her mother a substitute for God. She looked to her mom's memory for security and identity instead of looking to the Lord and to His perfect gospel promises. Whenever we do that, and we all do, whenever we replace God as the center of our affections, as the greatest treasure of our hearts, as the source of significance and identity and hope, We are saying with our attitudes, with our words, with our actions that He is not God, that He is less than He really is, that there is something or someone else, however good it may be, like a mom, that replaces Him as supreme. You may have uh, missed the impact of the Paul Tripp quote. Lisa started with, without the context, here it is again. Don't ask the people in your life to provide what only the Trinity can. Human relationships are most beautiful when purpose, identity, and joy have already been found vertically. Vertically meaning in a relationship of faith with God Himself, by trusting in His Son. The next verses in Exodus chapter 34 give us more to consider. Part of what uh, the Lord continues to say here is in verse 13, break down their altars, these idols, smash their sacred stones. You know, when we consider the, the contemporary application of this, the relevance to us here today, uh, we would all say bowing down to golden calves isn't a temptation. It's not something I think about. It's, it's not something that allures my heart. But idols of the heart are so much more difficult to identify in order to smash to pieces, to get rid of, because so often on the outside, they look good. They seem perfectly acceptable. And we say of them, what's wrong with them? Why so nitpicky? Why so particular? Why, why, why not look at the big picture? I miss my mom. What's wrong with that? I work hard in my career. It sounds admirable, better than the lazy bum. I want my spouse to make me happy. Good marriages are an important part of a stable society. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is that idols of the heart are always good things that we make ultimate. We elevate them to an importance that they were never intended to serve in our lives. We treat something that does have value. We're not saying it has none. We treat something that does have value as having highest supreme value. And that is a worship disorder. How does God react when we do that? 
We see it in verse 14, still in chapter 34. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, capital J, is a jealous God. Striking language, isn't it? For God Himself to use to describe Himself. He did it in the, the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol. I don't know if you caught that. And He says it again here. He actually says His name is Jealous and redundantly says, for I am a jealous God. We think of jealousy as a negative characteristic, don't we? Something that flows out of immaturity and insecurity and selfishness, wanting what others have. I'm jealous of that boy because he got the new toy, the hot toy for Christmas. So, what does it mean when God Himself says He is jealous? What is He saying He wants so desperately? God wants the affection and attention and the longing that you and I extend towards anyone or anything else which is an idol or a God substitute. That's what God's jealous for. And since the Bible consistently describes God's relationship with His people as a marriage, we could put it in this term, striking in itself, on its own. God can't stand His bride, the church, sleeping around on Him. And if you think that's improper to use to describe God, look at the prophet Hosea, whose life called by God was intended to be a, a living parable, a living example, an illustration of Israel, the people of God, the church in the Old Testament, cheating on her spouse. We do it today when we look to anyone or anything else for identity and purpose and hope. So God says, get rid of your old boyfriend's pictures. Throw out the love letters. Burn them. Get rid of, smash to pieces, anything that makes you long for another life, another lover, another source of joy. Why does God desire your attention and affection? Isn't He self-sufficient? Does this imply that He lacks something that He doesn't have and He needs us to complete us? Not at all. He doesn't need your worship because He's narcissistic, that He has a huge ego, He's all about Himself. God's jealousy, a scriptural truth, doctrine, because He says it about Himself, God's jealousy doesn't arise from insecurity or fear like our jealousy would. Pastor John Piper has uh, helped me more than anyone else to begin, a uh, begin to grasp this idea, uh, and, and these are uh, paraphrases of some of his thoughts. Uh, just listen. God delights in His own glory above all things. That means... God loves Himself infinitely. We have a problem with that because we can only apply that um, in reference to ourselves or people we know. If, any, if, if we knew anyone loved themselves infinitely, we would say, <laughs> not my friend, can't stand hanging out with that person, hard to tolerate the selfishness, right, the, the constant self-referencing, it, it's just, it's, it's very difficult. 
So we, we have no ability to, no reference point to, to kind of begin to grasp how a perfectly loving and holy God can be jealous. But stay with me here, because here's why that's not narcissistic, but logical. God would not be God if He valued anything above what's truly most valuable. If He's God, He knows with full understanding and full wisdom, nothing escapes His knowledge. He knows what is supremely valuable in the universe. He knows the without which nothing of the universe. He knows the single source of highest joy and lasting satisfaction and eternal pleasures. And since He Himself is that treasure, there's nothing selfish, and there's everything right and good in His infinitely desiring and delighting in His own glory. You can only say this about God Himself. If He doesn't delight in Himself as the supreme glory, what else would He delight in as supreme treasure? And if He did, He would show that He doesn't know something. He's missing some perspective on the universe. He's not grasping what is truly most valuable. And so, it must be so that if God is God, He infinitely longs for His own glory. That has an outward benefit as well, because God's jealousy is a holy, pure longing for the grace of salvation that He has worked out at cost to Himself in the giving of His own Son so that you and I who believe in Him can taste, experience what it means to be fully human, to be fully free without shame and guilt and maximum joy and pleasure and happiness. His infinite longing for His own glory works itself out in His spousal jealousy that you also would see with eyes of faith what is most supremely, uniquely valuable. Not anyone else or anything else, but God Himself. Lisa made someone very good, a godly, faithful woman of God. She made someone very good into someone ultimate. She let love for her mom displace love for God. She let her mom's love for her displace God's love for her. And by God's grace, He wouldn't have it. By God's grace, Lisa is now able to understand the purposes of God, even in her mom's death. She said, so powerfully. My views of my mom as the perfect mom would have continued to cloud my view of Jesus as the only perfect Savior. Otherwise, Lisa would continue to be blinded to the fact that she was settling for something far less valuable than the perfect love of Jesus Christ. And now, yes, she can continue to mourn, as is proper, but she can also celebrate her mom's memory. She can celebrate her mom's current life in God's presence, which lacks nothing. And she can release her mom in her mind from a role that her mom could never have played, Savior. God, as a jealous husband, 
can say with total confidence that He desires our undivided attention because He knows that a loving relationship with Him and Him alone is the only way to know supreme joy and pleasure and belonging in relationship. Even more powerfully, Lisa shared, shared this, the deepest misery expands my capacity to know greatest joy. You can only say that as the Holy Spirit gives you that awareness and conviction that, yes, this is true. In my deepest misery, God has expanded my capacity to know greatest joy. That is gospel grace given to a daughter of the King. Listen to John Piper in Desiring God as we close. If God loves us enough to make our joy full, He must not only give us Himself, He must also win from us the praise of our hearts, undivided attention, perfect love of a spouse, not because He needs to shore up some weakness in Himself or compensate for some deficiency, but because He loves us and seeks the fullness of our joy that can only be found in knowing and praising Him, the most magnificent of all beings." How jealous of a husband is God? So jealous that He sent His only Son to the cross to be forsaken in order to win back the bride who had gone after other lovers. So jealous of a husband is God. The death of Jesus in the place of all who trust in Him is the supreme revelation of the pure love of God for His sinful people. What other response is there than to see that Jesus Himself is highest treasure? Is Jesus your highest treasure this morning? Is there something that is supreme in your heart above Him? You start by seeing how easily you look to other people and other things to fulfill you but realize they can never provide what you crave. Jesus can. And when you trust in Him as Lord and Savior, your growth, even extending into eternity, will come as you see Him more and more clearly as your highest joy, treasure above all else. Lisa's story was triggered by Debbie's grace story back in January. You have one too. Let God, through His Spirit, show you more clearly the story that He's telling in your life, and perhaps one day through your life, if He calls you to share what He has done with others in your life. Let's pray. Lord, this gospel is marvelous. It gives us hope in the midst of tragedy. It frees us from the enslaving patterns that we have chosen for ourselves. This gospel of grace is marvelous above all because resurrection power was poured out on the Son and is promised to all who trust in the Son, Jesus. Thank you, God, for life and life eternal. Thank you, God, that you are renovating all that is broken. We trust in you to complete that work. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.